Our sermon passage this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 13. You can find that in the Old Testament. If you don't have your Bible, in the Pew Bible, it's found on page 220, 220, 1 Samuel 13. Uh, we're continuing this series on the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And I told you last week, if you wanted to hear something positive about Saul, well, that was your chance. Uh, and that's going to be true today. From here on out, we're going to see one bad thing, one failure after another in Saul as the kingdom that was given to him begins to unravel before our eyes. And this morning, we see the very first thing, the very first act of disobedience and treachery uh, that Saul commits as king. I'm going to begin at verse 1, and I'll read all the way to verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash. Uh, and then 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people themselves hid in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. But Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people following him were trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed... And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. 
And raiders came up out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people of Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen? Uh, We've all been in these situations where uh, we've tried something, we've had a goal, and we didn't meet the goal. Things fell apart and failed, and we ended up having to have a meeting where we determined why things broke down or why things went wrong. Have you ever had those kinds of meetings, maybe with yourself or with people at work? What went wrong? How did it go wrong? At what point did it start to go wrong? And what could we have done differently? Those are the questions you should be asking in times like that. Well, in First and Second Samuel, in these next several chapters, that's what the writer is doing. The writer is pointing out why Saul's kingdom will eventually fail. He's taking us back and showing us the key moments in time where Saul made unfaithful decisions, which will later lead to the downfall of his reign. You can kind of even see a hint of that in verse 1 of chapter 13, if you'll look at that. This is a verse that has confused people down through the years uh, because, you know, one reading of it might sound like he's saying Saul was only one year old when he became king. Which we know, of course, wasn't the case. He was already a grown man. And so what I think is most likely is that it meant from the time of his anointing to the time he became king over all Israel, that was one year. And then two years after that, these bad things started happening. And so what that means is, think about this, Saul reigned for 40 whole years over Israel. But within the first three years, he started to be unfaithful to God. His kingdom began to unravel just three years in to a 40-year reign, which is why we're going to see this sadness uh, pretty soon that for 37 years of the reign of Saul, his main object is to chase a teenage boy around the desert to try to kill him. He chases David all those years. Uh, He's not doing his job as king. He's chasing a 19-year-old kid, likely. Because he's a rival to his throne. It's a sad ending. What went wrong? Well, here's the first example. Saul failed to wait on God in obedience. Saul did not wait on the Lord. And he was called to do that. We are called to do that. Much of life is about waiting on God. So as to obey him when he speaks and gives us instructions. And so if you look at your bulletin, I want to show you a few things about waiting this morning as we consider the story in verses 1 to 7. And then at the end of the chapter, you see that waiting is difficult. 
And I think all of us agree with that already, but I'll try to show you why it's difficult. Secondly, we're going to see in verses 8 to 13 that waiting is wise. To wait on God is wise. And then finally in verses 14 and following, we're going to see that waiting on God is ultimately necessary. You have to do it. You have to learn how to do it. All right, so first of all, waiting is hard. I don't have to tell you this, but I want to show you why it's hard. Uh, think of these two scenarios, all right? Both of them involve you driving up South Florida Avenue through Lakeland, all right? Sen- <laughs> you already know where I'm going with this. Scenario one, uh, it's Saturday morning. You're going just for a leisurely breakfast with your family, and you're driving up South Florida Avenue. How do you feel? Uh, even on Saturday morning, right? Uh, on Saturday morning, if I'm just going to breakfast, not a big deal. Right? I'll get there when I get there. It's all good. Yeah, I hit 10 red lights. No big deal. Right? Now imagine second scenario. It's Monday morning, rush hour, that time when everybody and their cousin are taking their, their kids and their cousin's kids to school. And you're going up South Florida Avenue and you're late for work. How do you feel? I mean, this is aneurysm time, right? These are the things that cause your head to explode in anger and impatience. You may do things that you regret. You certainly do not reach work feeling well, do you? Well, that's what this story is showing you. It is very easy to wait on God when things are outwardly going well. That ain't hard. Uh, When things are outwardly going well, you have all kinds of tangible things to put your hands on to say, yes, the Lord is with me, and oh, how sweet it is. God is blessing me. He's making my dreams come true. He's fulfilling all my needs. Uh, Wow, the Lord, the wind is behind my back. God, you are so good. I'm going to wait on you forever. And then all of a sudden, you get placed in a hard situation where the outward things escape you, And then all of a sudden, it's really hard to wait on an unseen God. Isn't that right? Israel experienced that. It tells us there in verse 2 that Saul had an army that he was able to gather, but it was a measly army. It was tiny. I mean, last week we saw how how Saul had had 330,000 troops under his command. And yet here, that command has whittled all the way down to how many? 3,000. He gets 2,000, he gives his son another 1,000, and they set up in two different places. And then here come the Philistines. Jonathan takes over one of their garrisons, and they get mad. And so they raise up a force of their own, and it tells us there in verse 5 that they had 30,000 chariots, the Philistines, 6,000 horsemen and troops. How many of them? Like the sand on the seashore in multitude, which is the Bible's way of saying we tried to count them and couldn't count them. There were too many to even number. They've got 3,000. The Philistines have seemingly endless numbers. And here they are, angry, ready to take over. Notice how everybody reacts. It tells us in verse 6, they were in trouble and they knew it. They were hard-pressed. I love that word, by the way, hard-pressed. It describes life so often, doesn't it? Hard pressed between a rock and a hard place. 
uh, all my needs aren't being met. All my dreams aren't being fulfilled. Things are not going my way. The wind is not at my back. It's against me. Hard-pressed. And because they were hard-pressed, the people had a hard time waiting on God in faith. Instead, they went and hid themselves in every hole they could find. It's almost comical if it weren't sad in verse 6 where it says they went to caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns to hide. It went from bad to worse to worser. I mean, it's one thing to hide in a cave. I'm, I'm okay with that. But to hide in a tomb? Not okay with that. To hide in a cistern, which is basically a well of water? Definitely not okay with that. And yet they were, because they were so desperate, they began to desert Saul in great numbers until Saul only had 600 people left out of the 3,000, which is what it tells us there in verse 15. And it's at that point that Saul himself starts to freak out. Look at verse 8. He waited for seven days because that was the time Samuel, God had appointed through Samuel. Wait for seven days and I'll come and I'll tell you what God wants you to do. I'll offer the sacrifice and we'll worship God and then you'll know how God is going to help you, Saul. And Saul waited and he waited. It got to the seventh day. The seventh day started to expire and he's like, where in the world is Samuel? I can't wait anymore. Bring me the offering. I'll do it now. I'm not going to wait on God's word. I've just got to get busy. And it says, as soon as he offered the burnt offering, behold, wow, Samuel, just in the nick of time. He came on the seventh day, even though it was at the very end of the seventh day, and Saul was caught. He had allowed the hard pressing of his circumstances to drive him away from God rather than to cause him to wait on God. And this is a constant danger for us. This is a constant temptation, and I'm not going to pretend this morning that it's easy. And I'm not going to pretend this morning that I have not done what Saul did many times. And I hope you'll also be honest about this. Betsy Howard uh, writes this about the story. She says, we can allow our waiting to drive us from God or to drive us to God. Our burdens in life, I love this, our burdens in life exist to make us lean all our weight upon the Lord. That's what Saul should have done. I'm sitting here waiting. I can't see God. I can't see Samuel. I don't know what's going to happen. God's ways are not my ways. He's infinite. He's out of reach. Instead of saying, let me move on, he should have said, wow, what an opportunity for me to feel what it's really like to lean everything I got on God. You see, we think it's easy to wait when things are going well, but really what it is is we're halfway leaning on God and halfway leaning on our circumstances. Isn't that the truth? You know, it's God plus a good paycheck, and I'm okay. It's God plus obedient children, and I'm okay. It's God plus, you know, a degree and a good job, and I'm okay. Whatever it happens to be for you, God plus. What happens when the plus gets minus is you get to realize just how much you really do wait on the Lord. And it ain't always pretty. Before we start to condemn Saul, we got to first just relate to Saul. 
Because all of us have a different, I mean, everybody's life is different. Some people have more good than bad, and some people have more bad than good, it seems. Everybody has a different lot in life. But all of us have both. Uh, in fact, most of the time, we have both at the same time, don't we? We, in some areas of our life, it's going great. Wind at my back. Praise the Lord. Other ways of my life, I'm hard-pressed. Most all the time. What a plethora. What a, what a absolute uh, generous portion of opportunities I'm being given to learn how to lean my weight on God. And yet I don't see it that way. Just as Saul didn't see it that way. He thought, man, the Lord's not going to show up. The unseen God is not there. The God whose promises defy my senses must not be true. The God whose ways are mysterious must be so mysterious that he's not even real. And so let me just go ahead and do what I can do in my own strength. And we'll figure this problem out. This morning... How are you feeling hard-pressed? Where are you feeling hard-pressed? And how are you handling it? How good are we at just waiting on God? God, I'm not going to make a move until I pray. God, I'm not going to figure out what I'm going to do until I consult your counsel from your word and fully hear it. God, I'm not going to try to do this alone. I'm going to get together with your people, and I'm going to join that community where we can mutually encourage each other's faith as I walk through hard times. Are you doing that, or are you instead moving ahead with the burnt offering and moving ahead with your own ways like Saul did? That's the first thing. It's very difficult to wait on the Lord in hard times. Now, secondly, I want you to see it's wise to wait. Things that are difficult are not always foolish, and things that are easy are not always wise. All right, look at Saul. Saul, it says, didn't wait for the seven days, verse 8. He went ahead and didn't wait on Samuel. And then notice how Saul tries to justify his actions. Are you good at trying to justify your actions? I hear a lot of myself in Saul here. Let's look at it. It says in verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, oh, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come in the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now they're going to come down against me, and I have not sought the Lord, so I forced myself. I had to do it. Circumstances pressed me where I could not wait on God anymore. I just simply had to disobey him. I had to do it. You understand, Samuel, right? Have you ever done that? Oh, Lord, I had to do it. Think about this. There is never a situation, according to the Bible, where you have to disobey God. Ever. There's never a time where you can't wait on the Lord. Ever. Now, granted, there's going to be some times where maybe, perhaps, it might cost you your life to obey the Lord. But that don't mean you can't. That's a big ask. I understand that's a huge thing, but it's, it's reality. 
the Lord is a faithful God. The Bible says he doesn't leave us or forsake us. It says when we're in hard times, he will provide a way of escape. It says he will help uh, those who rely on him. They will not be put to shame. You never have to disobey God, ever. Or as one writer says, Saul should not have allowed his earthly circumstances to transcend God. He should not have thought that he had to transgress God's word simply because his circumstances were bad. And that's exactly what he did. And it's exactly what you and I often do. Now, we may look at what Saul did, and, and all day long we may think, wait a minute, what's the big deal, right? I mean, all Saul did was he offered one of the sacrifices about 10 minutes before Samuel got there. Big deal. Why is God going to be so hard on Saul for this? Oh, we don't understand the way God does, do we? We do not evaluate our actions the way God evaluates them. So often we look only at the outside. When something seems small, we conclude it's small. God, who looks at the heart, sometimes sees the biggest, most terrible sins where we see seemingly innocent actions. As one writer says, we are incompetent judges of God's judgments. Because what we see as little, because we ignore the majesty of the offended God, or because we ignore the heinous nature of the sin, or the aggravations of the offense, God sometimes sees as an action of the greatest weight and moment. What God saw in Saul was a wicked mind and a wicked heart in rebellion against him and against his own conscience. He saw a gross act of distrust, a contempt of God's authority, a desire to make people big and God small. And to God, that was a big deal. His king could not be that way. His king could not lead in that fashion. People were big, God was small. Saul, all he could say was, well, there's the people, and then there's you, and then there's the Philistines. People, 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 big, big, big. But he didn't consider how big God is. To him, God was tiny in comparison to the Philistines mustering and the Samuel dragging his feet and the people hiding in tombs and cisterns. He, he saw God as small in comparison. What a terrible exchange he made. That's why Samuel, in verse 13, says it very directly. He says, Saul, you have done foolishly because you've not obeyed God. You've done foolishly. Now, when you hear the word foolish or fool, what do you think of? Usually we think of yeah, a silly person, a person that shouldn't be taken seriously, like a clown. But in the Bible, the word fool is much more serious than that. Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. In the Bible, foolishness is denying the relevance of God. <coughs> denying his existence, denying his power, denying his willingness, denying his character. That's, that's the height of foolishness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Not fearing God is the beginning and end of foolishness. Saul acted foolish because he judged his circumstances to be greater than his God. And so instead of choosing to wait on God and still feel anxious, he decided to solve his anxiety and not wait on God. He went for the quick fix. If he had waited just 10 more minutes, he would have heard the word of the Lord, Samuel would have offered the sacrifices, and he would have had the opportunity to know how God was going to take care of him. But instead we get the sad statement in verse 15 that God walked away from Saul. Samuel got up, he rose, and went from Gilgal. As if to say, if we don't wait on the Lord, we can't expect God to always wait on us. There comes a time when the waiting is over. And our opportunities to wait on God are finished. Saul's heart apparently was so stubborn in this, God knew his heart. He wasn't judging him overly harshly because God doesn't do that kind of thing. He judges perfectly justly. He must have judged that Saul's heart was so rebellious that in this moment, the kingdom of Israel was beginning to slip out of his hands because he did not factor God into the equation. Now think about this for yourself. For me and you to face a situation of difficulty without thinking about God being bigger than the situation is like trying to bake a cake without flour. Okay, notwithstanding all the flour substitutes, the alternative flour. I know we live in that age, right? Notwithstanding all that, you still got to have some type of flour to bake a cake, right? Life exists. Your life exists. Because God is. And so to try to conceive of life without factoring the ingredient of God into it is like trying to bake a cake without flour. It's foolish, it's crazy, it will not end well, and it will not lead to a wise life. Not at all. And so what we ought to do in these situations, instead of letting our waiting drive us from God, it ought to drive us to God. We ought to say, God, I can't see you. That makes me nervous because I don't see where my help's going to come from. And yet, to not see you, what good news? Because everything I see is bad right now. And so praise God, I've got someone who's above and beyond the scene. God, that you're eternal, that scares me. I don't even understand eternity. How can you know the end from the beginning and everything in between? I don't even know how that works, God. And yet, what an amazing thing. I serve a God who's not bound by time. Wow. You see, the things that confuse us so often and make us feel like we're abandoned are actually the things, if we'll look at them the right way, are the very medicine that the heart needs in trouble if we'll wait on God. God, that your ways are higher than my ways. That scares me because I wish I could predict things better. I like to be in control a lot in my life, and I wish I could understand where you're going with things, but I can't. But instead of that being a source of anxiety, what a freedom it is to know I'm in the hands of the one who knows better. You see? These are the things Saul could have done in wisdom, which he decided not to do. 
Listen, if you read the Psalms, and I hope you always read and sing and pray the Psalms, because they're God's hymn book to you and to me, God's prayer book for me and for you. If you'll read the Psalms, you'll find many people who were in the exact same situation as Saul. They felt hard-pressed. They didn't like being there. And yet, unlike Saul, they brought their needs to the Lord rather than running away. They waited on God. They said things like, God, out of the depths I cried to you. God, I do not know what you're doing. How long will you wait, God? Are you going to abandon me forever? They'll say things like that. But guess what? They're saying them to God. Something that Saul was not willing to do. Instead, he took his ball and he went home, so to speak. Because God wouldn't play by his rules, he was not going to listen to God. How can you, when you feel hard-pressed, how can you remind yourself of a godly or God-centered perspective? You've got to learn how to do that. You've got to fight to do that. Remind yourself of how great and mighty God is. Compare your God to your circumstance. And keep doing it until your circumstance seems small and God seems big. Because it's there that you're seeing things wisely, rightly, truly. And it may take a while to get there. Persevere. Keep comparing. Keep contrasting the wisdom of waiting. But let's look lastly at the necessity of waiting. In conclusion, we see it there in verse 14 and following that God is very determined to have a people who wait on him. God says to Saul, now your kingdom shall not continue. God was rejecting Saul. This was the beginning of the end for Saul's kingship. But the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. God is seeking somebody who will wait on him. Seeking somebody who will obey him. Saul, you've proven it's not you. But let me tell you, i got good news. God has been seeking, and he's found that man, and he's about to be raised up. Of course, he's talking directly about David there, who just shortly after this will be anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel, though he was a young, young man. God, listen to this, God is a seeker. Or to put it in good fall terminology, God is a hunter. And God is a fisherman. The Bible describes him in both ways. He's a hunter and a fisherman. Now all the hunters and fishermen in our church know this is true. It takes skill to do either thing. You can't just wake up one day and not have any experience or any knowledge and go try to do it and do it well. You've got to know. You've got to know what equipment to use. You've got to know what you're looking for, where to look for it, how to look for it, how to, what to do with it when you get it. It's a lot of considerations with hunting. And what this is saying is that God is a persistent, continual seeker of men and women. He seeks people after his own heart, people who will wait on him, people who will listen to him. He's, his eyes are going to and fro, so to speak, all throughout the world to find those who will do this. Now let me ask you this. If David is the guy... which it seems like he is. 
God has found a man, and he will anoint him prince over his people. If David is the guy, did God find his man? Yes and no. (coughs) David had faith. Saul didn't. David had a relationship with God. Saul didn't. David did much, much better at waiting on the Lord and at obeying God. Absolutely. That's where the Psalms come from, which I was telling you about a minute ago. David went to God. No question about it. Did David always wait on the Lord with absolute perfection? Did David always obey God's word with like perfect perfection? Wow. Of course. No, actually, stay tuned. And you'll see some pretty bad things that David does in his life. Which means what? God had to have continued seeking. All right, get ready with your Sunday school answer. Because this is a very important Sunday school answer. Was there any point in history when God's seeking found his man? You can say it. Starts with a J, ends with an Jesus. Jesus, yes. Absolutely. Now, this is so important. Jesus. Now, this is why it's important to answer that answer. I know that's a Sunday school answer, but it's a true answer. Here's why it's important. God seeks men and women who will wait on him and obey him. And in order to find the man who did that perfectly, he had to send him. He had to provide him. The eternal son of God had to become a human being in order for us to have a man, the one and only, who in all that he did waited on the Lord with perfection, obeyed God with perfection so that at the end of his life he could take that spotless, pure life and offer it to the Father in our place. Washing away the sins of our impatience, washing away the sins of our disobedience, And granting us the power to change. Granting us the Holy Spirit. The same mind that was in Christ. Given to his people by faith. So that we can learn how to be those people who wait better. To be those people who obey and run to God first. Rather than running away from him in distress. Jesus Christ is the only king of the kingdom. And when you place your faith in him every day, what you're saying is, Jesus, help me wait like you waited. Cover me where I have not waited well and give me that same mind and heart that was willing to wait on the Father that you had. There's no more beautiful description of waiting on God than the description of Jesus in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of the death of Christ hundreds of years before it happened. You know the passage well. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was pierced for our sins. You know, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You, you know that's that passage, probably. Well, in, chap, in, in that passage, verse 7, 53, 7 in Isaiah, it tells us Jesus was hard-pressed And it uses that same word that we find in 1 Samuel 13, verse 6. The people were hard-pressed. Jesus was hard-pressed. Now, what does it say next? 
Israel was hard-pressed, and they ran and hid. Saul was hard-pressed, and he didn't listen to God, and he went ahead and did it his own way. Jesus was hard-pressed, and it says he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He waited on the Lord. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he went silently. And right there in the Bible, a way to hope is opened up for people like me and you. People who are bad at waiting. We can become members of the body of Christ by faith. We can become one with him. His spirit dwelling in us. Us dwelling in him. So that his perfect spotless waiting and obedience might become ours. How glorious is the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul was not the king God was looking for. David was a little bit better, but he was not ultimately the one. David can't save you. But Jesus Christ can. And many of you in this room have proven it in your life that he has and he does. Have you seen it in your life? Some of y'all have seen it. You used to be far worse at waiting on God than you are today. That's something to give thanks for right there. Because that doesn't just happen automatically. That's not something that you can just, poof, do. God must do that. What a blessing. And others of you, I want you to see, that can happen for you. You can get a heart after God's own heart. But it's not something you can produce on your own. It's something that must be provided, must be given through the great King, Jesus Christ who knew that it was necessary for us to wait on God, and so he waited on God for us. And he now waits on God alongside us to show us the way to do it. Amen.